Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, minister to our hearts. We pray that your spirit would be your spirit would be working in each one of us. Uh, each one of us, your spirit is teacher, your spirit is guide, and we. Uh, there's a lot in this passage today, and um, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would minister to each one of us as we have need to hear uh, about this truth about our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, years ago, like centuries ago, there was a king in the area of Germany. His name was King Conrad III, and he defeated a, a duke there who had his dukedom, I guess, his, his fiefdom, his, his castle. And um, the, the wives who were living in that besieged castle negotiated a surrender with King Conrad, uh, which granted them the right that they could leave the castle and they would have their freedom and they could, whatever, they, whatever they could carry on their backs that would be theirs, and they would not be considered captive and slave. And so they negotiated that with the king, and uh, they left everything else behind, and what they carried out on their backs was their husbands. <laughs> um, and when the king's people, when the conqueror's people saw that happen, they said, hey, wait, that's not what the king meant. And the king was so impressed with their ingenuity that he said, let the king's word stand, and he let them go with their husbands on their backs. Another king uh, in uh, Scandinavia, his name was King Harold Gormson, uh, reigned during the 10th century, um, and he had a bad tooth in his mouth, and it was dark. It was like a gray, blue, black, blackish looking, and so he got, it was a, it was a, I guess it was a dead tooth, um, and he got the name Bluetooth, so he was called King Bluetooth. Well, uh, today, Bluetooth wireless technology is named after that king because, as the explanation goes, King Harold Bluetooth was famous for uniting Scandinavia just as we, Bluetooth technology, just as we intended to unite the PC and cellular industries with a short-range wireless link. So, true story, Bluetooth is named after that particular king named Bluetooth. In fact, the symbol for Bluetooth, if you looked at the symbol, it's a merging of two initials, two Danish runes, uh, letters of standing for Herald and Bluetooth. Uh, so that's the terminology there. Inc- incidentally, uh, King Bluetooth became a Christian while he was king. Uh, he was converted about the time, around 965 A.D. Well, I'm not really here to tell you about other kings. I'm here really to tell you about one king. One king that you know, and that would be Jesus. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the passage that Anastasia read for us earlier. It's Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the passage she looked at, uh, verses 1 through 11. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 907. Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. At the beginning of his ministry, he first began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist had a similar message when he came before Jesus, and he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But when Jesus preached that message, he really knew it because he knew that he himself was the king who was bringing in his kingdom. 
He knew he was the king, but he kept that secret for quite a while. In fact, he kept that secret for most of his ministry uh, up until that first Palm Sunday. Earlier in his ministry, the crowds had tried to force him to be king, uh, but he would have none of it. Why was that? Because he was not a typical king, and that's what they wanted. They wanted a typical king, one they were used to. But that's not who Jesus was. They did not understand the kind of king that he was. So what kind of king is Jesus? That's the question we're going to be answering today as we look at this particular passage in Matthew um, chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 3. In fact, I want to read... I want to read most of the passage here. Look at verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them, and immediately he will send them. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on him, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What kind of king is Jesus? First of all, he is a self-aware king. He is a self-aware king. He knows he is king. Jesus very clearly, we see from the first few verses, he very clearly stages this event. He presents himself in this particular way as a king. And this is the first time he has done so. He sends his disciples off to obtain a donkey and its mother. He is going to ride in Jerusalem, though typically he does not ride anywhere. He walks everywhere. But now he is going to ride And he's very careful in the animal that he selects. He selects a colt with its mother, not a war horse. He doesn't ride in on a chariot. He's signaling the kind of king that he knows himself to be. He is aware that he is king. This isn't a surprise to him. It's not like people or others are persuading him, hey, you'd make a really good king. Oh, that's a good idea. No, he's aware of this. He knows the Old Testament. He knows his ancestry. He knows that he is a descendant of David. He knows that one of David's sons will sit on the throne of David forever. And above all, he knows his heavenly father's will that he will be king, that he is king. The wise men came when he was just a baby. And what did they ask? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And when he rides, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, he knows how his followers are going to react. And it's a big crowd of followers. It's not just the 12. It's a, it's a, it's a massive crowd of followers of his going behind and before him, we read in several of the Gospels, including here in Matthew. They know how, he knows how they're going to react. He knows they are going to think of that prophecy in Zechariah 9, which is quoted here in this chapter, about how the Messiah King will ride in on a donkey. Jesus is here intentionally putting forth his claim as king, his claim as heir to the throne of David. Now look at verses 4 and 5. This took place, this whole thing took place, this whole event took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I want to focus in on that word gentle there. He is a gentle, serving king. 
Jesus is a gentle, servant-hearted king. He comes riding on a donkey, not a war horse. The word gentle is found, it's quoted here in verse 5, but it's also found in Zechariah's prophecy that it's quoting in Zechariah chapter 9. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says this. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am, what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. To quote the book Gentle and Lowly, that book that we studied last year, Jesus, that, G, that Jesus is gentle means that Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's, he's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is not harsh. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's not prickly. He's gentle. And he's servant-hearted. Just prior to this incident here of this, this event of riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, just prior to this, um, the disciples had been arguing about who was going to be Jesus' number two and number three persons, officers, if you will, in his kingdom. James and John had convinced their mom to go ask Jesus for that privilege. And when the other ten heard about the behind-the-scenes requests, well, they were kind of ticked at James and John. Look, at, look back at the previous chapter, chapter 20. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Matthew 20, 25. If you're, if you're in the Pew Bible, you know, it's right there on the same page, basically. Verse 25. But Jesus, uh, look at verse 24, actually. When the ten disciples heard this, the request of James and John through their mother, when the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first of all uh, wants to be first among you must be your slave. And then look at verse twenty eight just as the Son of Man, in other words, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is not like most kings, dominating their subjects and exercising power just to exercise power. He hits the nail on the head here when he implies that many in power are in power to be served as opposed to serve. But Jesus himself came to serve. He is a gentle, serving king. And then look at verse 9. Look at what they say in verse 9. The crowds are yelling and they're shouting and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Very interesting, that phrase. I'm going to share with you something that I just learned this week with regards to that phrase, son of David. I was looking at the term son of David when Jesus is called that all throughout the Gospels. And do you know that in most of the places when he is referred to as the son of David, it's in the context of him healing someone or meeting someone's needs. Maybe some of you knew that. I did not know that. But this leads to the fact that he is a healing, need-meeting king. He's a king who heals and meets needs. People are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And by that, they recognize in Christ one who is a healer. One time a man was brought to Jesus, and he was possessed by a demon. 
And not only was he possessed by a demon, but because he was possessed by a demon, he, he was blind, he couldn't see, and the demon had also control of his tongue, he couldn't speak. Jesus heals him, he, he drives out the demon, and instantly the guy can see and he can talk. And the people responded this way. All the crowds were astounded and said, perhaps this is the son of David. Another time, Jesus was outside of Israel in foreign territory. And a Canaanite woman, a non-Israelite woman, comes up to him. And interestingly, she refers to him as the son of David. It's very interesting. Because she wants help with her daughter. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented. By a demon. She recognizes in Christ the possibility of him being the son of David who heals. And in fact, he does heal her. Look back at Matthew chapter 20 again. Matthew chapter 20, look at verse 29 there. This is right before the triumphal entry. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd told them to keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. Now look at chapter 21, verse 14, right after the triumphal entry. Look at chapter 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. And what does verse 15 say? When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David. The children see him healing, and they refer to him as the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the healing king. He's the one who heals. He's the one who, who meets needs. People call him, revere him as the son of David because they see in him as a healer and they're not wrong. They see in him as a healing king and they're not wrong because he has opened the eyes of the blind. He has opened the ears of the deaf so that they can hear. He has loosened tongues so that people could talk. He's fed huge crowds when they were hungry. He's driven demons out of loved ones. He's made legs and arms work that were previously paralyzed. One man had been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus, like that, heals him. Another woman had been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all her money on doctors. And like that, she just goes up and touches Jesus' robe, the hem of his robe, and she's healed. Another man had been blind from birth, and Jesus healed him. Some of the people he healed had had multiple things going on at once, and he healed them all their symptoms. He healed people on the verge of death. And death didn't even stop him. He raised people from the dead. An only son in one case. A 12-year-old daughter in another case. A beloved brother in another case. Jesus presents himself as a gentle king, as a serving king, as a healing king, as a need-meeting king, a king who meets needs. But then look at what the people say also in verse 9. 21.9, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord, so he is God's chosen king. He is God's chosen king. He is the anointed one, the chosen one. Jesus didn't take this office on himself. He didn't presume to be king. He was anointed by God, chosen by God. 
Ten centuries before this, a whole millennium before this, God had said to Samuel, God had chosen a king, and he said to Samuel, I want you to fill your horn with oil and go to the city of Bethlehem, the village of Bethlehem, and I want you to go to Jesse's house, and I want you to anoint one of his sons that I will show you to be king. And that was David. That was David. He anointed, God chose David to be king, and he also chose David's greatest descendant to be king, and that was Christ. David was anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Jesus came up out of the water, and the Spirit descended upon Christ, and there was a voice from heaven, the Heavenly Father, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You need to know that Jesus isn't self-appointed. Jesus isn't an upstart. He's not a rogue, charismatic leader that can win the crowds and force his will. He's not self-anointed. He's been chosen by God himself. He is the Lord's chosen. He comes in the name of the Lord. He has the full backing of heaven. And then number five, he is a suffering king. He is a suffering king. We don't see this in this particular passage that we're looking at, but it's all around this passage. It's all around. I want, to, I want to go back to chapter 20 again. Look at verse 17. While going up to Jerusalem, so they're heading into this Palm Sunday event. Verse 17, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be resurrected on the third day. Now skip down to verse 28. He says of himself again, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? As a ransom for many. He was going to give his life. He's clear. He's very clear that all this is soon going to happen to him. So we have here a prediction of suffering and another prediction of suffering in verse 28. And then in our passage that we're looking at, chapter 21, he presents himself as king, as a king, as a gentle king, and then four days later, he's going to be arrested. And the day after that, he's going to be crucified. I want you to flip ahead in your Bibles, if you will, about 10 pages to chapter 27. Matthew 27 Look at verse 11. This is Friday morning. Jesus wrote in on Sunday morning. Now this is Friday morning. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you have said it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So Pilate asked him about being a king, and abuse is heaped on him by his own people. He is a suffering king. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a reed in his right hand. So they've dressed him up in military garb. They put a crown on him. They've given him a staff, if you will, a scepter, if you will, a reed. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
And they spit on him, took the reed, and kept hitting him on the head. He's a suffering king. Look now at verse 37. Verse 37. Now they've crucified him. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He's repeatedly mocked for this, uh, the, the reality of the situation that he is king. Verse 38, then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads. Look at verse 41, in the same way the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he cannot save others, or he can, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus is a king and yet he is a suffering king. This king took an unexpected route to his throne. A necessary route, but an unexpected route. It wasn't unexpected to him, however. Earlier in, way earlier in Matthew, the devil comes to him in the desert and he tempts him. And one of the temptations is he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he says, if you'll just bow down to me, Satan says, if you'll just bow down and worship to me, all these kingdoms will be yours. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus knew that his route was a much harder one than that. It was one that encompassed suffering. Jesus is a suffering king. And why must he suffer? Let's not forget that he suffers for his subjects. He, subject, he suffers for his people. He suffers for us. He suffers in our stead. He suffers in our place. The king suffers for his people. So he's a suffering king. And then number six, he is the eternal king. He is the eternal king. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced to her that she was going to um, be with child and give birth to uh, Christ, the angel explained to her a little bit about what her son would be like. And he said this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Hebrews 1.8 says this, and it's specifically talking about Jesus. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. Jesus has been seated as king at the right hand of God, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Nothing and no one can dethrone him, not even death. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He is the eternal king. So Christ is a self-aware king. He's a, he's a gentle king. He's a healing, need-meeting king. He is God's chosen king. He's a suffering king. He is also the eternal king. We could say more about the kingship of Jesus. But since he is this kind of king, of what use is that doctrine to us? What is the application? What are the lessons that we can learn from the fact that Christ is this kind of king? Well, let me, let me share with you four uses of this doctrine. First is this, since Christ is such a great king, submit to him. Submit to him. Don't be like the crowd before Pilate who said, we have no king but Caesar. 
Jesus is standing right there, and they, and, they, and they say, we have no king but Caesar. Don't be like that crowd. Don't say, I have no king but our government. Don't say, I have no king but myself. I have, I have no king but my personal preferences. I have no king but whatever culture says is right and wrong. I have no king but my own opinions. Don't be like that. Don't be like those who would like to have Jesus as their savior, but not as their king. As one writer puts it, those who will not have Christ as their king to rule over them shall never have his blood to save them. We should submit to Christ. He is a good king. Since he commands love, then we should love. Since he commands humility, we should, we should strive for humility. Since he commands forgiveness, we should forgive. Since he commands generosity and good works, then we should strive to be generous and kind and to do good to others. He is also forbidden some things as king. He's forbidden that which is contrary to creation, which is contrary to his will, which is contrary to his nature. As a result, we as followers of Christ, as followers of the king, we still view as sin many things that our culture says is good, such things as abortion and euthanasia, such things as homosexuality and sex outside of marriage and cohabitation, living with someone of the opposite gender outside of marriage, such things as divorce, such things as taking the Lord's name in vain or foul language or using cuss words. I mean, these are, these are all things that the world has no problem with. But we, as followers of Christ, have a problem with it because Christ has a problem with it. And so we follow him. Submit to Christ the King. What he says to do, do. What he forbids, don't do it. And when culture and authorities command us to do what is contrary to the will of our King, let us, like Peter and John, say we must obey God rather than men. And I, and I think you know this, but let me just make it clear. The commands of Christ are for our good. They are for our joy. When you live in obedience to the commands of Christ, when you live in compliance with his will, it's for your lasting joy. Since Christ is such a great king who has demonstrated his great love for you and dying for you, submit to him. A second application is this. You will one day stand before his throne accountable for your life. You say, what, you know, what relevance is it that Christ is king? Well, this is relevant. One day we'll all stand before his throne. And for followers of Christ, it's good news. John 5.22 says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John had a vision of this day in uh, Revelation chapter 20. Let me just read you some of these verses. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not good not to be written in the book of life, but there are so many who are written in the book of life. How do you get your name in that book of life? How can you stand before him without being condemned? By trusting in him, by inviting him into your life. 
by accepting, acknowledging that you are a sinner, by believing on his name, by committing your, your life to him. When you receive Christ into your life, then you are in Christ. His atonement purchased on the cross then covers your sins, all of your sins, so that you are forgiven. So that judgment, the judgment day has no terror for those who know Christ. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, as Romans 3.24 says, you are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. One day each, you parents, you grandparents, one day each of your kids, each of your grandkids, will also stand before that throne. It is wisdom as much as you can to prepare them for that, to point them to Jesus as Savior and King. I've shared this meme once before in a message and I share it again because I really like it. There is a 0.0296% chance your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 100% chance your child will stand before Jesus. Get them to church. Or we could say more, train them up in the way they should go. A third application is this. It is no dishonor to serve Jesus. It is no dishonor. It is not dishonorable to serve Jesus. Put the other way, it is a great honor to serve Jesus. He is a king. And not only king, he is the king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His reign is forever. Many are quick to mock believers for their desire to live godly, holy lives. But we serve the king of kings. One of the, Roman, one of the later Roman empire, empires, one of the later Roman emperors, his name was Theodosius. Um, he was uh, the Roman emperor. He was also a professing Christian. And he said at one point he thought it was a greater honor to be a servant of Jesus than to be the emperor of the Roman Empire. How right he was. It is an honor to serve such a person as Jesus Christ with our lives, to live our lives in obedience to him, to live our lives as a testimony about him. When you hear people mocking your faith, remember the honor that is yours to serve our gracious, eternal King. And then finally, worship Him. Worship Him. One thing the crowds had right that day in Matthew 21 is that they worshipped Him. They praised Him. They sang His praises. Now, I don't, I don't know what you think about England's royal family, you know, King Charles and the whole family. I don't know what your opinions are about that, their family. Uh, but it seems to me that they get a lot of attention and that some of that attention borders on worship. Um, but even if King Charles and his family were the best human beings of our day, they would not hold a candle to the character of Jesus Christ. They would not hold a candle to the majesty and the bearing of Jesus Christ. Christ's love is a perfect love. His grace is magnificent. He is far more compassionate than tenderest mother or grandmother you know. His mercy is matchless. He is holy and just. He is 100% just. There is no impurity or immorality in him at all. All his motives are pure. His motives are right and always good. His power is limitless, as is his knowledge and his wisdom. And his power and his wisdom are always at the service of that which is truly good. His kingdom is described in Romans 14:17 as a kingdom of righteousness a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy. 
Remember what we've seen of this king. He is gentle and serving. He meets needs. He heals. Don't hesitate to worship this king and give him praise every day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for this king who is ours, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You talk about uh, the word, your word talks about in Ephesians chapter 1, how Christ is the Messiah and he has been given to the church. He has been given to the church as a, as a gracious, compassionate, almighty uh, ruler. Uh, and we are, we, are, we are so grateful. Help us to submit to him. Help us not to be, uh, not to allow the culture to shame us into thinking that somehow we, uh, we have uh, made a mistake or that uh, we need to cover um, uh, our relationship with Christ. We give you praise uh, for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. May we, may we reflect his glory in the way we live our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.